Good morning, guys. Welcome to week four of our series called The Faces of One Another. If you remember now, we're looking into the hundred times or so that in the New, in the New Testament, predominantly written either by Paul or, or communicated through Jesus, how they taught us to fulfill this one new command that Jesus left us with, to love one another. Remember now, it was Paul, the guy who after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, they did not leave us wondering how to go about that. They explained it through all of these one another commands. The way we fulfill the law of Christ is to one another, one another reciprocally back and forth. And as we've seen, the scriptures are loaded with one another commands. Now in this series, we're simply looking at five of them, what we're referring to as the faces, the F-A-C-E-S of another. Faces is simply an acronym to help us remember how to love one another. We express this love by forgiving one another, accepting one another, caring for one another, encouraging one another, and submitting to one another. Guys, you have never looked into the face of another human being, another son or daughter of the Most High God, including your own in the mirror every morning, who did not need to be forgiven, accepted, cared for, encouraged, or submitted to. Now, we've covered the first three over the last couple of weeks. Today, I want to look at the one another that, well, actually... No one wants from another, but everyone needs. Let me explain. My wife and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this week. And thanks to so many of you for the encouraging words and posts. You know what the most encouraging post was for me, though? At dinner, we had the waitress snap a quick picture to send out, thanking everybody for all of the kind wishes. Guys, I had to tell you, in that picture, once I posted it and, and got a look at it, I had to give it a double take. I looked, and now you can laugh at this at home, that's fine, I won't hear you, it won't hurt my feelings. I looked 20 years younger. It's funny, I was thinking, wow, I look really good in this picture. You know what it did? It confirmed to me what I've been trying to tell so many of you over all of these years, that yes, I really am a man in and around my 30s. And so, all amped up about my newfound fountain of youth picture, when Joan and I got home, I began to show my kids, which is what I do on the rare occasion I do get a good picture. I was thoroughly enjoying their reactions. Wow, Dad, you look great, Dad. You really do look young here, Dad. That was until I showed it to my son, Caleb. Now, Caleb took one look at the picture, quickly handed me back the phone and said, uh, yeah, Dad, the waitress took this picture in portrait mode. It's a filter. You don't really look like that. It makes everyone look good. And you know what? I checked, and it turns out he was right. I mean, the pain. The only thing that soothed my broken ego was this newfound knowledge I had regarding portrait mode and that it would be available and mandatory for all of my future Facebook posts. The other night, Caleb one-anothered me. You know what he one-anothered me in? The truth. See, my son Caleb was a truth-teller, 
And here's the truth. We all need at least one truth teller in our lives, don't we? You know why? Because as human beings, we have this incredible ability, propensity, a deeply ingrained ability. I think it's part of our sin-stained nature to deceive ourselves. It's interesting. If you want to go down an internet rabbit hole, I mean, you can spend a day on this. It's so fascinating. If you want to try to understand some, at some pretty deep levels why we do what we do, look into the study of something called cognitive dissonance. The study of cognitive dissonance is based on our nearly endless ability to, well, to, to lie to ourselves about ourselves, to, to justify what we do or say so that it's consistent with what our self-concept is, so that it's consistent with how we perceive ourselves. That's why I loved that picture. You see, as human beings, here's what we know. We have an inner desire to be people of consistency. We want our beliefs to be consistent, to line up. And we want all of those beliefs to match our behavior. You see, when, when one belief we have conflicts with another, or when we act in a way that violates what it is that we say we believe, we enter what psychologists call a state of dissonance internally, psychologically. We don't like dissonance. It, it's internally very uncomfortable for us. We begin to have negative feelings about ourselves. We question our self-worth. Our self-esteem begins to suffer. You see, we can't live healthy lives in a state of dissonance, which honestly, guys, biblically is not very shocking. You see, the theory of cognitive dissonance wasn't put forward until 1957. But James, the younger brother of Jesus, give or take 2,000 years ago or so, said as much when he wrote that, quote, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, cognitive dissonance is common to all men, and, and the one another we're going to look at today is going to be helpful in, in, in this matter, whether you're a person of faith or not. But I have to tell you that I think what, what this cognitive dissonance issue might be most prevalent in those of us who've decided to follow Jesus, to give our lives over to the purposes and plans of Jesus. And here's why. Because we have a hard time aligning what it is we say we believe in regards to Christ with our otherworldly beliefs, the things we were taught growing up or, or that our culture has taught us. One example here would be that Jesus tells us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. This is in conflict with another deeply held belief that most of us have, which is that we do unto others as they deserve to be done unto. It's the same with our behavior, right? We believe in Jesus and his teachings. Heck, we promote them. But when it comes to like the really big things, like our bodies and our money, Things like premarital sex, living together, finances, tithing. Well, when it comes to those issues, 
unfortunately, here's the reality, professed followers of Jesus live their lives not very differently than the people who don't claim to follow Jesus. And you know what that causes within us? Dissonance. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We can feel in our souls the instability. And, and by the way, I, I want you to understand this doesn't put you in bad company. What it makes you is human. It was this same Paul we spoke of earlier uh, who wrote this to the church in Rome. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now I want to introduce you to the difference between Paul and maybe your pastor. See, Paul saw this in himself, and he cured the dissonance within his soul through this declaration. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, in recognition of the dissonance, he allows the Holy Spirit to show him his sin. He's convicted of his sin, broken over his sin. He confesses his sin, and he realigns his life under the lordship of Jesus. We tend to take a different path. Actually, we tend to take the opposite path. You see, Paul changed his behavior. That, that's how he reduced his dissonance. What we tend to do is justify our behavior. That's how we try to comfort the dissonance. In order to reduce this discomfort within our soul, we come up with excuses. Well, uh, I mean, you know, everyone's doing it. Or we minimize what it is we're doing. Oh, it's not that big, big a deal. It's, it's just sex or it's just my taxes. Or we kind of just skip over the things of Jesus that make us misaligned with him and, and thus uncomfortable. Well, you know, Jesus never said anything about Trump or Biden, so I think I could probably say anything I want about them on my Facebook page. I, I heard it put this way. This is good. We are all like a man on a diet who drove past the bakery and said he would only stop for donuts if there was an available parking space in front of it. Clearly, that would indicate it was God's will that he should eat a donut. Well, sure enough, his sixth time around the block, a parking space opened up. So, since both James and Paul seem to understand our proclivity to lie to ourselves, to, to justify all kinds of dissonant behavior and beliefs, is there a one another way for handling, well, I mean, in, in this regard, for handling one another? Sure enough, there is. It's the one another that no one wants but everyone needs. In the New Testament, there's a letter written to some of the Jewish Christians, and they were confused, of course. They had some cognitive dissonance going on, for sure. I mean, think about it. They had all of their culture and the laws and the prophets, which seemed to say one thing about faith, right? And then, then they had Jesus, who seemed to be indicating something quite different. 
And so the author of this letter to the Hebrews was writing to them to encourage them to not allow this dissonance to make them go back to the way they used to live, their old ways of all the laws and the traditions. Here's what he writes to them. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters. Okay, so just pause there for a second. He's writing this to this community of Christ followers who are on the verge of making a disastrous decision to turn their backs on their faith in Jesus, the living God, and go back to the way they used to live. And so he writes to them as brothers and sisters, as a community. And and, and he says that together, all of you together, be sure to look for this. See to it, be on the lookout that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, guys, stick with me. Who is supposed to see to it that no one has a, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God? Well, it was the collection of brothers and sisters. We are, in a sense, called to take responsibility not just for ourselves, not just for our own hearts, our own ways, but for one another's. The church was to see the brothers and sisters were to make it, these sin issues, communal. There was a communal responsibility for the walk of others. Now, of course, this would make perfect sense if you think about it, right? It was Paul who described the church this way as a body that the church is not to function independent of one another, but that the church was interdependent. He told the church that he wrote to in the city of Corinth that, quote, there should be no division in the body, but that its part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And so... The writer to the Hebrews says, hey, you have to care about every part of the body, not just yourself. Just like you have to be on the lookout for like if one of your extremities begins to turn purple or your eye begins to turn red, like you would be on the lookout for that. You wouldn't ignore it and go, well, it's just my eye or it's just my my leg. He says the same thing here. Be on the lookout for this issue within the body. Be on the lookout for people, other brothers and sisters that are in the faith that have a sinful, unbelieving heart because understand, they're going to turn away from God. I heard one speaker this week who took note of the way the author wrote what to be on the lookout for. He noted, and you know this if you've been around long enough, that there's actually a sequence to people's turning away from God. Very few people that I've ever met go to bed on a Sunday night as a believer listening to a Hillsong cassette or tape or, some, or a record player in today's politics and wake up on Monday morning and say, you know what, change my mind, don't believe today. Yeah, I believe last night when I went to bed. Must have been something I ate or something I drank because this morning, you know, the whole Jesus thing doesn't really make any sense to me anymore. Guys, I've been in church leadership for over 25 years. I've never seen that happen. Paul 
describes, excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews describes what I tend to see happen all the time, just about every time. Some of you who have drifted and come back know this. It's your story too. Paul, uh, the writer, says here's the deal. Be on the lookout for this. First, it's a sequential pattern. First, there's sin, and then there's unbelief. First, there's a behavior issue. Then there's a belief issue. People almost never change what it is they believe first, and they'll go, well, now that I don't believe that anymore, I'm going to go behave differently. What we tend to do, because of this cognitive dissonance issue, right, internally we're not lined up, once we've behaved differently than we believe, we tend not to then change our behavior, we tend to change our beliefs. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? The writer to the Hebrews nails down modern psychological theory 2,000 years before it was even thought of. And I mean, we know this, right? Think about it. This is why we worry so much about our kids going off to college. Maybe this even happened to you at college. You grow up going to church, youth group, all the rest, solid in your faith. Off to college you go. And, and what happens when the average kid goes to college? Well, you know what happens. He goes crazy. First time, no parents. I can go wherever I want. I can go with whoever I want. I can drink whatever I want, smoke whatever I want, do whatever I want. And suddenly, there's a massive change in behavior. Dissonance sets in between behavior and belief systems. It becomes uncomfortable internally. How do we quell it? Well, we change what we believe. It's not not just college kids, though. I see this in, unfortunately, I see it in marriages all the time. I mean, heck, you might be struggling with this one right now in your home. I mean, we promise to love, honor, and cherish one another, forsaking all others until the right other comes along. And I mean, I can't tell you how often, in in the crazy ways, people try and calm the dissonance. I, I've had really wonderful, strong believers in, in God come to me and tell me that, that they heard from God very plainly that they were to leave their spouse and marry this other person. I, I just have to tell you, God's not telling anyone that. God hasn't changed his mind on the permanence of marriage. That, that's not from God. That has to do with aligning my belief and behavior. I've had other people tell me that, well, it's better for my spouse and, and, and probably my family if I believe because you know what? I, I've fallen out of love with my right, wife right now or I've fallen out of love with my husband. I, I love someone else. It would be better for everyone if, if I moved on. Got to get that dissonance aligned, right? No one, no one to date in the years I've been in ministry has come to me and told me that they're leaving their spouse because they don't believe in the living God anymore. And and so since they don't believe in God anymore, they feel freed up to do whatever it is they want. That's not what happens. What happens is there's a behavior change. They meet that girl or that guy. They get that job offer or the opportunity of a lifetime or a chance And so when the guy or the girl or the opportunity doesn't match up with the faith in the living God, well, something's got to give to relieve the unrest in my soul. And the writer of the Hebrews nailed it. What tends to give is belief, is faith in the living God. 
and people walk away from God. I've been a pastor long enough to know when people who have been invested in the church, who have been part of the community, when they're suddenly just gone, I know it's not because they woke up one morning and decided they didn't like church anymore or they didn't like Christians anymore or they didn't like God anymore. What tends to happen is they got themselves involved in something with someone, some kind of action or behavior that is at odds with what they profess or the community they're in professes to believe. So the thing that goes in order to bring them inner comfort is their faith is the church, is God and his people. It's, 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 it's not just a decision. It's not, a, it's not just a one-time thing. It's, it's a journey down a wrong path. And all of us, including your pastor, have the propensity to take that path. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, guys, be on the lookout for this. When you see this begin to happen to someone, see to it that the people around you don't fall into this pattern, that they don't go down this path. Now, how do you do that? How do you stop someone when you see it? Here comes the one another. In other words, when you see this happening, before they stop showing up at church, much earlier in the process, here is what you should do. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. By sin's deceitfulness. Sin lies to us, right? And so there it is. Encourage one another. Do it daily. Do it today while it's still called today because I know you'd like to put it off. It might be awkward. But do it today. Now that word there, here's the key to understanding. That word there is not encourage as we tend to understand the word encourage. We think encourage is like cheering somebody on from the stands. Hey man, way to go. You're right, that, that girl is much hotter than your wife or that guy sure does treat you better than your husband. Way to take that deduction, no one will ever know. That's not it. The word there means Encourage one another, it means send for or summon another, beseech them, beg them, exhort them, and admonish them. What the writer is saying is that when we see someone starting to head down this path, we have a responsibility not to ignore it not to pretend that we don't notice or see it, but we are to invite them, call for them, go to them, and then beg, beseech, and admonish them to make a different decision, to choose a different choice, to plow a different path. It's not to cheer them on, it's to engage and confront them when you see them starting down the path of sin. And here's the deal, right? This is the one another that no other likes. I mean, the, the confronter doesn't like it. Man, are you serious, man? You want me to go and inject myself in somebody else's business? I mean, that's not, that's not my business. It's their business. And of course, the person being confronted is not going to be a fan of this one another either. Why? Well, it's 
My business is not your business. But friends, this is again what would make this community of believers, this is what would make a Christian community so unique and so different because that's what everybody out there thinks. That's regular thinking. That's unpeculiar thinking. That's unregenerate thinking. It's usual thinking. You see, the church, not, not the building, but the church, the, the movement of Jesus made up by the people of God, right, with a purpose of redeeming the world, they're supposed to be different. They're supposed to live differently. I heard it put this way this week. Christianity, unlike any other faith, is personal, but it's not private. You see, when it comes to our, our hearts and sin and unbelief, we are one body. My business is your business, and your business is my business. Not for judging one another, but for loving one another. And the key to cognitive dissonance in our lives is not changing our beliefs. The key to cognitive dissonance, the thing that will heal it, is that we want another, one another. We tell the truth to each other. We watch out for one another and we let others, listen to me now, we let others in love speak into our lives. I mean, again, guys, think about how unusual and attractive the community of Christ would become if we could do this one to another. Tell the truth one to another. Receive truth one from another. Think about the marriages, and you know this, that over the years could have been saved if someone, just someone, had said something when they first had an inkling. The families that could have been kept together the, the jobs that could have been saved, the finances that could have remained intact, the addictions that could have been overcome or stopped. If someone, when they knew something, just cared enough, loved enough to overcome the awkwardness, to overcome their own fears, to overcome the cultural mindset that says it's their problem, their business, not my business, I'm gonna mind my own business. If somebody loved enough to summon and beg and beseech and admonish. Guys, love does not always look the same way, but love never looks away. This, too, is what it looks like to love one another. In the church, we're to encourage one another this way, to tell the truth to one another about one another in love. You know why? Because this is the truth that Jesus said, if we would understand, would set us free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian executed by Hitler, put it this way. Nothing, that's a powerful statement, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. 
One who, because of sensitivity and vanity, rejects the serious word of another Christian cannot speak the truth in humility to others. Such a person is afraid of being rejected and and feeling hurt by another's words. Sensitive, irritable people will always become, church, listen to this. There's such wisdom here. Sensitive, irritable people will always become flatterers, and very soon they will come to despise and slander other Christians in their community. When another Christian falls into obvious sin, an admonition is imperative because God's Word demands it. The practice of discipline in the community of faith begins with friends who are close to one another. Words of admonition and reproach must be risked. John Wesley was an English cleric, theologian, and evangelist who was the leader of a revival movement within the Church of England that became known as the Methodist Church. This week I was reading about the beginning of his movement. Quote, people met together in little communities to help hold each other accountable for their deepest values and most important decisions. Wesley had a beautiful phrase for this. He called it, watching over one another in love. Guys, before someone entered into this community, they'd be asked a series of questions to see if they were serious about living in mutual accountability. How's this for a unique, a unique, a unique community? Imagine this on your, on your membership questionnaire. Here's what the questions were. Number one, does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Number two, Do you desire to be told of your faults plainly and clearly? Three, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Four, do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible, that we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? Is it your desire and design to be on this and all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that's in your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve. One writer asked, can you imagine people in your family or circle of friends answering yes to any of these questions? It seems like craziness today. But in Wesley's day, they did. And they did it by the thousands They did so simply because they knew, they knew they could never grow into the people that they wanted to be without the help of one another. Now, the sad part is that over time, that commitment to truth-telling got lost. These small groups shifted their focus from mutual accountability to, to vague sharing. Most of the power of these little communities fizzled out, and eventually they died. We are called to encourage one another. Is it easy? No, no. Of course it's not easy. I mean, it's much easier to close my eyes, to pretend I didn't see, or to assume I must be wrong, hope everything that'll just work out, Uh, maybe lob in a prayer request, maybe talk about you to somebody else. Love says we want another, one another, and we do that as we go to one another to beseech and beg and exhort and admonish. Is it going to be awkward? Of course it's going to be awkward, no doubt. 
And that's why something like this needs to only be done in love by people who are in a relationship one with another. You know, the, I guess the fear here is that somebody hears this and thinks that they're being deputized to be the sin police for the church. Please let me relieve you of that. It is not your job to go looking around and in the windows of the five or 600 people that come here on a Sunday morning so that you can straighten them out. This is for people who are in community with one another. This is why small groups are so important. This is why being part of one another's lives in here are so important. This is why church membership is so important. This is why the scriptures say do not forsake meeting together so we don't become like strangers one to another. And so before you go to encourage one another, make sure you're in right relationship with one another. Jean Veneer writes, I'm struck by the people who come into our communities and very quickly put their finger on failings, of which God knows there are enough, without being able to see anything good. They show up in the church believing that their gift is to be a savior. There is a kind of person who speaks truth recreationally, but does it without love. Such a person blasts away and passes judgment in a spirit of arrogant superiority, which they cover up by saying, I'm a prophet. There is a very important theological distinction between being a prophet and being a jerk. See, what burns deeply in the heart of a true prophet isn't just anger, isn't judgment. It's love. Now, another reason we don't do this is often we don't feel like, well, who am I to judge? I mean, that's true at one level, right? Jesus said it, but before you go to correct your brother, make sure you take the log out of your own eye. In other words, make sure you examine yourself first. Before you go to encourage another, use this as an opportunity to examine your own heart first. But, but, and, and we forget this one, Jesus says that once you have done that, once you have taken the log out of your own eye, then you go. There was never a question of if you would go. It would be when you would go to your brother. He never said don't go. Therefore, encourage one another. And so I'm going to close this morning with two questions for you. The first is this. Is there someone that you need to go to? As we've talked about it this morning, has the Holy Spirit brought someone to your mind? Not a stranger, mind you, not somebody you barely know, but somebody that you would consider a friend, a fellow believer. Have you been avoiding being the encourager you're called to be? I mean, you've seen what's going on. You have some knowledge. You've become aware. But have you avoided the conversation? Friends, do you have any idea how much that person might need you to be there, to be their encourager right now, to care enough to confront them? Do you know what, what you could be saving them from? Now, sure, please check yourself. Examine yourself for the plank in your own eye. Remove what you find, but do not use that as an excuse to go to someone that, that you know and to love them and encourage and confront them. The writer of the Hebrews knew, <laughs> knew we'd come up with a lot of reasons not to do it. 
That's why he said, make sure you do it while it's still cold today. I guess my second question to you would be this. Do you have someone, anyone in your life that you have ever spoken the words to and invited them into this kind of relationship with you? Is there anyone that you trust that's mature, whose life you've examined and you believe to be a spiritually mature person? Have you ever gone out with anyone and and asked them to be an encourager? Not to rally on all the good things you're doing, but to challenge, beseech, and admonish you regarding things that might be creating dissonance in your life. Things where you are living in a way that is different than the way you believe. Guys, you got to find someone. You got to get in a group. I have a friend of mine that we, we talk every other week. This was his latest question to me. He texted me and said, I, I want you to share with me all of the ways that I, I could be impacting people in negative ways. And I, so I know what it's like to say, I don't really want to have that conversation. But my friend needs me. And you need a friend. You need this. Take them out for coffee. Ask them to speak to you honestly about what they see in your life. Areas where you might not be living in accord with what it is you say you believe. Now listen, I'm the most defensive guy there is. When I go into these times with with, with my friend, I have to say to myself, don't be defensive. Listen. Later on, God and I can talk it out and see if they're right. But for now, listen. Thank them for their input. Be open to being wrong. Gosh, you know how hard it is for them to tell you the truth? You should love someone like that. Sin impacts hearts, and then hearts change our minds. And before we know it, we wind up not just far from what we believe, but far from the living God and far from his people. Can I encourage you today to stop changing what it is you believe in order to justify your behavior? But, but friends, instead, in love, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but instead encourage one another daily, often, as long as it's called today, do it soon, so that none of you, none of the people you care about may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I'll leave you with this thought. Here's the truth, the danger, the danger is not that someone finds out what's going on. It turns out when it comes to sin in each of our lives, in our own lives, it turns out that the real danger, the thing we have to fear the most, is that no one ever finds out. Think about that. Encourage one another, Mendham Hills, and I'll see you back here next Sunday.